How are we all doing this morning? Other than some feedback. Don't worry, the sound guys will turn that game down in a second. <laughs> so, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. So if you want us to turn there, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version this morning. And uh, we're going to continue through this... Um, this uh, I think we just need to turn the gain, gain down on this channel. That's, that's probably it. All right, thank you. Um, so, so we're continuing through this, this study, and King Solomon, the one who's, who's, who's writing this, um, he's, he's got this expression, uh, under the sun. We've heard that several times before. In fact, um, I've got a few slides for us this morning. But this expression right here, under the sun, it's important to go back. He, he first utters this statement all the way back in chapter one, where he's talking about this under the sun perspective. And it's important to understand this perspective because this, this is looking at life, um, considering life without an eternal perspective. See, the things he writes about here, he lacks the vision of being like, uh, of he, he's just caught on the, uh, the, I'm sorry, this is the feedback's kind of messing up what I'm trying to say here. But uh, he's, his, his thoughts are just on what he sees in front of him, and he loses track of the eternal perspective. Of course, King Solomon didn't have as eternal as a perspective as we can have. He didn't have the entire Bible, uh, a book full of scriptures, both Old and New Testament. So he didn't maybe have the ability to look at an eternal perspective, but he was a wise king. But as we're reading through his, his knowledge here, <clears throat> we, can, we can see that's possible to know a lot about God, but not necessarily know God. See, God gave him the gift of, of wisdom. God, when he became king, he said, you know, I'll give you anything you want. Just ask for it. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And so God gave him wisdom. And so he was wise, more wise than anyone probably who's ever walked this planet since. However, his observations, while they might be accurate observations, his application isn't actually always spot on. And that's important to know the difference because, um, for example, um, we read through the book of Job. And, you know, Job had his three friends who came and tried to, like, give him good advice. And at first you're reading that and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's good advice. That's good. Wait, what? Like his friends were actually filled with terrible theology. So it's important that we don't just like take every verse and just immediately apply it to our life without looking into it and seeing how it should apply to our, our, our lives and how it, it um, go, uh, how it compares with other scriptures. So that's the first thing we should do when, when reading confusing verses is uh, compared against other scripture. And we're going to attempt to do a little bit of that this morning. So, um, I think we should pray real quick before we really get into this. God, I, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time of worship. I thank you for the opportunity to study your word, God. And as we dive into these scriptures, God, um, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So chapters five, and we'll see if we can make it through six as well. Um, Starts off, verse one, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools 
for they do not know that they do evil. So this very first verse, um, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Does anyone recognize uh, what this is here? Has anyone been to visit this in real life? These are some of the temple steps going up to uh, the, the temple. Of course, it doesn't look like it's going anywhere because there's a big wall that people sealed a long time ago. But if that wall wasn't there, then you would have been able to keep going up through the, that gate there and up to the temple mount. And so when King Solomon says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God, you really would have to walk prudently because do you see anything odd about these steps? <laughs> no railings? <laughs> that would give some people trouble for sure, right? But if you look real closely, and the picture's a little washed out, it's a little grainy, but... Um, you'll see that certain stairs are longer or wider than others, right? So you'd have to pay attention to where you're going. Um, you, you couldn't just run up there. Um, you might stumble, right? So it says you have to walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. Well, what's the sacrifice of fools? Well, in verse two, he says, don't be rash with your mouth. So, um, I didn't really have a title for this, this morning's message, but if I did have to put a title on it, it would probably be, don't put your foot in your mouth. And I thought I was the best uh, authoritative speaker on that, so I volunteered to teach this morning. Um, but that's quite literally it. When you're approaching the house of God, don't put your foot in your mouth. Don't say things that you shouldn't be saying. Put, you need to prepare your heart when you go to the temple to worship. Now, we don't have a temple here. We don't need to go offer offer sacrifices to God. But this is a house of God, right? This is a church where we've come to gather. Um, how many people fought with their spouse on the way here in the car? Don't raise your hands. That was a, it's a trap, but you know, how, or how about did someone cut you off on the way here? And you're like, Oh, you jerk, you know, and I'm speaking to myself, by the way, <laughs> like, are we preparing our hearts when we come to the house of worship? Am I prepared to hear what God would have to say to me? Um, it, it, what if you show up and you don't like the, the worship, you know, that morning, or you don't like that worship song. There's a couple of worship songs that when people, uh, when they sing them, I'm like, I don't like the writer of that song. That's just bad theology, you know, and I'll get all hung up on, you know, like the, the, you know, the Bible college student in, inside of me, you'll get hung up on, on some of the words instead of just taking it for what it's worth is just, I'm preparing my heart. To, to hear from God this morning. So do not be rash with your mouth. This is really the sacrifice of fools. And let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for he's in heaven. <clears throat> so the, the key thing here is perspective, for God is in heaven. If you want to keep your heart from uttering, or your mouth from uttering rash words, then we should be uh, remembering who he is and have a, 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 a healthy fear of God, which we'll say a, a few verses later as well. Um, continue to say, therefore, let your words be few. Well, there's a couple of verses we can go off of that. Proverbs 20, 25 says, it is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterwards reconsider his vows. And Jesus says this, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
So let me ask you this. Um, has anyone, has ever, anyone ever been like part of a, a prayer group or circle or whatever? And maybe you're like, you're trying to figure out what to say and you don't know what to say. <laughs> and so then you just like start talking and you're not really saying much of anything, <laughs> but you feel like you have to. Have you ever been part of a prayer circle where someone else prays and you think, oh, I should have thought of that. I should have prayed that, right? Have you ever been part of a prayer group where someone else is just praying on and on and on? It's, it's been said, a wise man once said, that um, if you're praying for about three minutes, people will pray with you. If you pray for three minutes more, people will start praying for you. <laughs> and if you pray for three minutes longer, people will start praying against you. <laughs> um, not to make light of that, in fact, just the opposite, you know, uh, the most important thing is just having our words be true and mean what you say and, and be heartfelt. Um, I, I actually kind of envy people who can just pray beautiful, poetic prayers. Um, my daughter can pray like, like amazing, beautiful prayers. But if my wife asks me to pray for the food before a meal, Nine times out of 10, it's something more like, God, thank you for the food. Please bless it. Amen. <laughs> I'm, I'm short and to the point, but I mean what I say, you know, um, and that's the key here. Therefore, let your words be few. And I found that it's better for me if I let my words be few, um, mostly when I pray. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by as many words. That's really my fear in praying too long or speaking too long is that people find out or I might accidentally become the fool. Um, there's a couple of verses we can go off of this. Proverbs 10:19 says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. There's another verse. 17:28 says, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. You ever want to be perceived as perceptive? Just keep your mouth shut and nod, you know, and, you know, maybe squint your eyes like you're really deep in thought. Or how about this one? This is one of my favorite proverbs from Abraham Lincoln, who says, it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubts. <laughs> Oh, Lord, help us not to be foolish. But how many times have we um, speaking out rashly, as it says, do not be rash with your mouth. Do not speak things hastily. How many times have we hastily prayed something in the, the heat of the moment? Um, which provides a couple of dangers. At, at worst, um, you might utter things you don't mean. And... Um, you speak foolishly, and at worst, you might hinder your faith when God doesn't answer your prayers in the way you think he ought to because you were so upset and emotionally caught up in the moment and you prayed, and then you feel like God isn't immediately responding to your prayer. So that can be a real hindrance to our faith and our walk with God. Well, verse 4, he says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better to not vow than to vow and not pay. So you kind of see this theme, don't put your foot in your mouth. You know, don't say things you shouldn't in prayer. 
when you're going up to the temple, when you're making vows to God. And the Bible has more than a few stories about people making vows to God and not following through on them. How about Samson? To me, he's kind of the, the, the biggest vow breaker there is in the Bible. His whole life was supposed to be a vow, right? He made this, the, the Nazarite vow, he's supposed to not cut your hair, and what else? Don't eat unclean things, don't drink wine, and he broke like every rule in the book that was uh, according to the, the vow he had made, right? Or how about another foolish vow? One of the most foolish vows made, in my opinion, would be King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. He was out in battle one day and he, he, things were going well and he made a silly vow saying, you know, no one should eat today or they'll die because, you know, as a sign to God or something. Well, he found out later his son, his, own, his, his son who had been off fighting a, his own uh, personal battle with his, his buddy, he had already eaten that day. And so what was he going to kill his son to, to keep his vow? Thankfully, that didn't come to pass. But... <laughs> People can make vows that they don't really intend on following through with. How about, again, I won't ask anyone to, to raise your hand, but has anyone in here ever made a vow? Maybe not so much in, Lord, I vow, but how about, God, I promise if you just get me out of this situation, fill in the blank, right? I'll never do this again. If you just get me out of this, I'll become a missionary. If you just, you know, get me out of this. And people don't follow through on that after God gets you out. Well, vows seem kind of dangerous. And they, in this perspective, they kind of are. So why would God even give the opportunity for people to give vows? Well, this is what Moses told the people in Deuteronomy. Maybe. Didn't work. Can we? Oh, did it? Oh, is it going through? Okay, thank you. Um, he says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So the biggest reason Moses even gave the people an opportunity to make vows from God is because it opens up a, a, a way to show your devotion to God. Vows could be very helpful when you promise God something and you serve God and then you see God bless your life from it, but it can be detrimental to your, your walk if you don't follow through. So this is, a, this is a good observation. So again, as we're going through this, we're looking at his observations and his applications, and this is a good one. It is better to vow than to vow and not, or it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. That's a good application here. Verse six, he says, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was taken, that was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity, but fear God. And that's really the key here, that last verse, but fear God. The remedy to making preventable mistakes like these vows is just having a healthy fear of God, not a fear of being scared and afraid necessarily, but of reverence to who he is in heaven. We continue on, verse 8. It says, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. 
Moreover, the profit of the land is for all, even the king is heard from the field. So don't marvel at this matter. High official watches over high official and higher officials over them. I'm just glad we don't have to worry about that sort of thing today, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But like, that's the point. He's saying that's a correct application. Don't marvel at these things. These things have been happening for thousands of years. But he says, even the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served by farmers. Even the kings, even the government, even the president has to rely on the farmers of the land. So that's a correct observation. Verse 10, he says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. You know, the expression, the powerful want, always want more what? Power, right? Kings want more wealth. He says it's never enough. <clears throat> this is also vanity. You know, this whole silver thing, I think we've said it before, that in Solomon's day, silver was so common that it was like a common metal. It was like everywhere. <clears throat> Verse 11, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? <clears throat> what does that mean? That means... The more people you have, the more people you got to take care of, right? If you have a business and business is going well and, you know, you start your own business, starts off as just you and maybe you get three employees. Well, that's great. But now you have three employees you got to take care of. Well, what if your business grows to having 10? That's wonderful. But now you have 10 employees you got to take care of. Well, Solomon no doubt had countless people under his, his reign that he had to take care of. And of course... The more money you make, the more Uncle Sam likes to take, right? This is everyone's favorite season, tax season, right? <clears throat> so when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Verse 12, it says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So <clears throat> if anyone here has had like a really physical job that you've had like every day, um, and for a while I was a cable guy for like eight years and I would, I would start my day at like six, seven in the morning. And sometimes I wouldn't come back until like nine o'clock at night and all day I'd be, you know, carrying ladders around up and carrying big metal satellite dishes up and down ladders and all day long. And by the time I'd get home, maybe I'd kiss the wife and just fall right into bed. Like, you know, maybe shoes and all, cause I'd be exhausted. There was no problem falling asleep. And if you've had a, a laborious job, you'd, you would, uh, you'd know all too well. But he says here that the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So King Solomon and all the luxuries that he had, all the wealth that he had, and he probably had the softest mattress in all the kingdom, and he wouldn't be able to sleep at night because of all these troubles that would keep him up. Verse 13, it says, there's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune when he begets a son. There is nothing in his hand. King Solomon, I read verses like this. I'm like, there is nothing that would make this guy happy. Because verse 13, he says, first of all, I think he's, I think he's over-exaggerating a little bit. It's a severe evil that, that he's seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. So he holds on to his wealth, but doesn't find a good way to use it. It's evil and it hurts the, the rich man. He gets those riches, but he loses them through misfortune. And he doesn't have anything to give his son. That's an evil and vanity. 
Well, back in chapter two, he also said this. He said, he said, then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule all over all my labor in which I toiled, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. So there's no pleasing this guy. Even if he can keep his riches and pass them off to his son, he won't be happy with that because his son might and did, spoiler, <laughs> act unwise. His son, of course, being Rehoboam. So there's no keeping this guy happy. Verse 15, he goes on to say, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Well, that's true. That's a correct observation application. When we die, we can't take anything with, with us except one thing, his word, you know, the Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away, but his word remains forever. And this verse here in first Timothy says, now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. So that agrees with this statement, but Solomon, again, he didn't have that perspective. His perspective was under the sun. It wasn't the eternal perspective. It was just the here and now. And he didn't truly grasp the concept that godliness with contentment is great gain. If you can be content with who you are and who God has called you to be, that is great gain for your life. He carries on verse 16. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Are you guys having a good time this morning? <laughs> is there anyone here thinking, can we just skip to the Song of Solomon and get into some good stuff here? This is, this is dark. <clears throat> just bear with me. Verse 18, he says, Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. <clears throat> Well, parts of this application isn't bad. It's good. It is, it is fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy all the good of his labor. That's a good thing to enjoy what God is, gives him for it is his heritage. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually, I would think, great advice to be pleased with what, you know, the works of, of your hands and what God's been able to, to the skills he's given you and what you've been able to accomplish. That's not too bad, but Solomon's bigger point here is that he's saying with life being so unhappy and nothing matters under the sun, you might as well distract yourself with the things of earth with his under the sun perspective. He, he thought, well, just distract yourself from all the misery in life and just, just take what you can get. Right. And to some point distractions can be good for us when you're feeling down, distract yourself. I, I like putting on a good movie, a good Star Wars movie, you know, but 
two and a half hours later after Luke Skywalker saves the galaxy, my problems are still there. I still got to deal with my problems, right? Um, distractions only go to so far. But nevertheless, he's saying, you know, rich is still better than, than poor. Gets into chapter six. He says, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun and is common among men and to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it's an evil affliction. Poor rich guy can't spend his money, you know, that's so evil. I think he's being a little bit of a drama, drama, drama queen here. Um, if he begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better than he for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness and its name is covered with darkness though it has not seen the sun or known anything. This has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but he has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. Is that a good perspective and application? Eh, wrong. First of all, he's saying it's better for a child to be born, stillborn, than to him experience a life of up to 2,000 years and not enjoy goodness. That's the wrong perspective. When you look around and you see the pain and sorrow in our everyday lives, sure, you can, it can be troubling. But Solomon, he's, he's saying 2,000 years with nothing good, no good, no joy in his life. Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, going back to the whole vow thing, one of the most important vows, maybe the only big vow I've ever made in my life was right here on this stage almost 19 years ago when I vowed to pledge my love and devotion to my wife. Talk about a vow that you shouldn't take lightly, right? Now, Solomon, it said he has a, th you know, a thousand wives and concubines, right? Now, I, I don't know about him, but when I, I got married, that was a joyful experience. And I'm assuming to some degree it was joyful and happy for him to be married because he kept adding them, right? <laughs> I guess at one point he married one too many. But like, come on, you can't, you can't talk about all these things and then say you've never experienced good, good joy and happiness. But, you know, he says, yet God does not give him the power to eat of this, this, this wealth and, and, and riches and whatnot. I think that's one of his biggest problems. You know, in the Bible, you know, it talks about how wealthy King Solomon was. Fun fact, the, currently the, the richest Americans right now would be, uh, what, Bezos, the Amazon guy, and Musk, the Tesla guy, right? Does anyone know how much their net worth is, each of them? <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> um, the last statistic I looked up the other, the other day, um, Bezos was like $205 billion. That was his net worth. I, yeah, that's it. Is that enough? <laughs> Does anyone want to guess what's estimated King Solomon's net worth was? 
Any guesses? Over a trillion? It's <laughs> a lot. It's estimated that King Solomon's wealth was $2 trillion. So, I mean, like literally 10 times the wealth of the richest guy in America. And yet it didn't make him happy. And I suspect one of his biggest problems is he didn't give it away. In fact, after my, uh, my message last night at Chapel Hill, um, my wife was talking to me in the car and she was like, you know, that's totally true. Like you were, you were talking about his wealth and it's totally true how like Samuel prophesied to the people, Hey, you really want a King? Are you sure you want a King? He's going to tax you. He's going to take your, your wealth and you know, all for himself. And it kind of came true right there. This is the, one of the biggest impressions we have that King Solomon, I think he made s- some good money. Now I think there was wealth throughout the land because of the whole silver thing, but he had great wealth, but he didn't know what to do with it. And I think that's really the key is that like the things that we have, we should be devoting them to God. In fact, um, you know, it's something as simple as like when people come over to my house and uh, offer them, like my house is yours, like take whatever you want, open the fridge, take whatever, you know, beverage you can find in there, food or whatever. And also uh, over the last, like I would say decade, we've had so many families and kids go through our, our, our home that we've probably broken at least like 50 glasses guaranteed. And every single time someone breaks a glass, they're horrified. I'm so sorry. That's terrible. I'm like, I don't care. I was using it for the Lord, you know, something as simple as a glass. Like, why should I be upset if I'm offering you something, you know, for the Lord and it gets broken? I don't care. It's the Lord's. And when we dedicate all our possessions and the things that we have, all of a sudden, you're not, you're not holding on to them so tight, right? Because they're for the Lord and to be used for the Lord. I tried to convince my wife that the Lord needs a new big TV for next Super Bowl next week, but uh, she didn't go for that one. But um, is the band here? We'll go ahead and bring them back up. Try and keep it short and sweet this morning. Um, and we also have communion this morning. Um, so actually, if there's someone who wants to pass around uh, communion, we could start doing that if we have any volunteers. We also have gluten-free communion this morning. So if you, if you need gluten-free, let, let someone know, or you can come up and grab it out of that smaller basket. <clears throat> but verse 7 says this, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Well, what does that mean? It means food on the table, working just to get food on the table, that's not gonna, it's not gonna make you happy. It's, motiv- it's, it's some form of motivation, right? If nothing else, if you're depressed and, and having a hard time going through life, there comes a point where you at least have to get off the couch and go get some food. Or you know you have to get a job to get food to eat and survive. So that can be motivation. Proverbs 16:26 says the person who labors labors for himself, for his hungry mouth drives him on. Jesus said this, we all know this verse. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Of course, we know that when Jesus said this, he was 
saying it to Satan, right? During this, the temptation in the desert. But not only is it a good tool to, to fight against Satan and his temptation, but it's really good everyday advice. Man can't live on bread alone. Bread will cure your hunger for a day, but it won't cure that, that hungry, that drive we have inside of us. We need God. Every word that comes out from the mouth of God. For what more, verse 8, has the wise man than the fool? Thank you. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. What does this mean? It means to appreciate what you have in front of you, the things that you see in front of you. We can get caught up and lost in our desires for the things we want, the desires of our hearts. And while it's good to have goals, things that we should strive to, aspirations, we can't get lost in those things. Similarly, we shouldn't get lost in the past. It can be easy to, to get caught up and think, oh man, I miss the, the past, the good old days, right? When life was simpler, when I was young, full of energy and life. And we lose sight of what we have right in front of us, the things and the blessings God's given us right here and now. Verse 10, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase, how is the man better? <clears throat> He's saying, Whatever one is, he's been named already. God already knows everything about you and your life. It's kind of a predestination type of view here that he's getting at. But it's true. God has your whole life planned out ahead of you. Don't get caught up on the things going on now. Of course, his perspective is you can't contend with him who is mightier. He had a more glass half full perspective here. But verse 11, his point being, more stuff doesn't equal happiness. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his, all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? His point being, do you know better than God? And we don't. We don't know better than God. Sometimes we think we do. We try and inform God what would be best for our lives. But when we keep that eternal perspective, when we avoid putting our foot in our mouth, and we just take a moment to listen, to draw near and hear what God is doing in our lives, God can work wonders in your life.